All right, welcome back. This is the Exodus of Magic podcast with Dungeon Master Eddie. We're on episode five, where my friend Caleb is here to talk to me about uh, new players at the table, what it's like to have new players come into the game, what it's like to be a new player going into the game. Uh, we're going to take a look at stepping into existing groups, sitting down with uh, you know brand new a brand new group completely, where people don't have that history, especially a history in an ongoing campaign. So, welcome, Caleb. It's good to see you. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, just for the background setup, we've I've talked to Dan, I've talked to Dale in earlier episodes, and we've talked about I've talked to Jeff. Uh, we've gone through systems, and Dan was originally a D and D player who played Pathfinder after Fourth Edition. Dale had been playing pretty much different versions of D and D depending on what was Vogue at the time. If memory serves, when you first came to the table with us, you were coming to D&D from GURPS. Exactly right, yes. I had had a previous group where I, when I lived in Madison, and a friend was so enthralled with the Game of Thrones uh, universe that he desperately wanted to spend more time there. So he introduced us to role-playing games entirely using the Steve Jackson GURPS generic universal role-playing system with the intent of getting to spend some campaign time in the Game of Thrones Westeros. And how long did you guys play in that game, that campaign? We played probably a year and a half, although with that, uh, the games were not necessarily every week. Often there was about a month uh, between games. And was it the same group the whole time? Mostly. Core players were the same. We had a few people in for brief sessions and a few people out. But for the most part, it was the same group of people. Now, when those when those other players came in for those brief sessions, were they... Was it they were just in town and this was their, their guest starring appearance? Were they just sitting in to see the game? Uh, what was behind these players coming to the table for the session or two they were there? From a motivation standpoint, what brought them to the table was a bunch of giggling silly stories about what was happening in this <laughs> particular world and how could this possibly be so much fun. What brought them out again is at times they just didn't have the time commitment and sometimes they did not realize how much... Uh, accounting and how much uh, other details went in behind and between the gigantic, flashy, uh, hilarious sessions. Uh, okay, so this was this was more like they were sitting in on a script read more so, and then they found out, no, you, you get to do the, the accounting and the tax work and script writing and all that together, and that just was a little overwhelming for them. Yes, and also I'd say they were present for the polished read when the skit went really well. This is the YouTube version of Saturday Night Live when the greatest <laughs> skits uh, float to the top, not necessarily the casting room of Saturday Night Live when they pitch all of the uh, uh, good ones and clunkers to each other. And how were how was this guest star setup received? Was it I mean, were, were there was there any territorialism? Like, all right, like we have something established, and then here are these new people. Was this everybody's just welcome? Was there any any of the 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 general friction of nature when when all of a sudden you have people coming in, or was it 
because it was that once a month over a year and a half that it never really built up to something like that where this is this is our campaign and yes people come in but there, there are group dynamics they need to adapt to I would say there was very little uh, conflict with new roles at times that could uh, become apparent when several different uh, several different people people wanted to take the group in a different direction that could happen even with first-time players and, and new players uh, one thing that I would contrast uh, GURPS and D&D is that the the rule set in the world is just much more uh, simple uh, in the sense that the the available weapons the dice rolling is all a much a much smaller set of material and so I think there wasn't quite the same gradient of expertise that that I would later encounter in in Dungeons and Dragons all right and and when looking back on that versus uh, joining the campaign we had running uh, where we had an opening and we'd been playing for two and a half years uh, and and we all uh, like we all knew you you knew all of us but even still, what was it like adapting to a, a largely established group dynamic? Because everybody had their their place in the system, right? And, and, and their belief on how things should work. Um, I'm speaking specifically to Drew, right? He was very, <laughs> you know, he had his, his hardcore view on how these things are supposed to work. Uh, so what was it like coming into that dynamic? The first thing I would I would say is that it was a very different entire structure with uh, in the sense of with my previous group there was there was very little uh, change in the characters as one person or not came into a very a session overall it was it had a similar atmosphere whereas uh, moving into that party especially gaming with with Drew uh, and with Tom. Both of them had both a much more nuanced expectation of the world and a much more uh, strongly held uh, desire for how the game was to play out. Um, I would say that in my previous campaigns, we were all essentially a bunch of tunes in the sense of, <laughs> of characterizations as, as tunes. Whereas um, in this campaign, it was much more um, varied in terms of a... Uh, Someone who wants to solve all problems with swords, someone who wants a particular kind of heroism, someone who wants a different direction. So, and D and D specifically gave a lot more uh, tools and controls in order to implement those various visions um, that you could progress so much further than than at least we had under the a more simple system. And thinking beyond the system to the people, you mentioned the. The idea of heroism versus, uh, like, the Jedi aggressive diplomacy with the swords uh, versus, I think of Jeff and how when when there would be deadlock or argument, he would just go mindless and just go do, to trigger, to, to force the plot to go forward. Sure. Uh, what was it like existing within that dynamic and trying to adapt to what at that point had become very strongly held beliefs in their characters and how things were going to progress. 
So what was it like adapting? I First of all, my first attempt was to remain attuned which wasn't which was enjoyable no no arguments there but wasn't necessarily effective um again just in recognition of the greater complexity of 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 dnd sometimes uh bringing a character without an understanding of nuance or how the various uh knowledges and ability could combine together to do truly interesting things in the game um the the new player feels kind of like the uh the person who shows up to play for the orchestra and uh, realizes that they brought uh, the triangle. Everyone else is playing a complex in- instrument, and they show up with a little triangle. So, um, so, so in some sense, that made it very easy to to just continue to be the tune and kind of throw a monkey wrench in diplomacy, um, or or take it a particularly silly silly direction, um, and basically trying to stay out of the way of the the characters whose uh let's just say the better angels of their nature still had a flaming sword and kept people out of the garden yeah <laughs> that's a very very accurate statement and in thinking about that uh in in the way that went and and dealing with the party i guess how do you feel the party reacted to you joining the group the party reacted in in some ways quite consistently with the characters that they were bringing in that uh, the uh, Drew taming the wilderness with his mighty axe um, really saw this as every other interaction as an initiation, trial by fire. You want to be part of the party? You show up and prove that you're tough enough to be part of the party. And if, if you need a quick toss in the lava to prove it, well... Happy to help you along. Um, others others adapted quite differently. So you, you mentioned Jeff. He has a very... He has a lot of angles of appreciation for the game and the story and story development. I would say it was uh, easiest of all to adapt to his uh, particular take because uh, he played such colorful and flexible characters that... Uh, they really were adaptable to any any situation. And what about Tom? What about Tom? Because Tom, with Tom's character as the cleric, he was initially thought to be the moral compass. Oh, I don't know that I found that. Well, exactly. that's the thing. By the time you showed up, it, it had been very clear that Dale, who, who had left as the barbarian, had turned into the moral compass. And Tom was a cleric who could just do Wonko stuff. And I, I think of, of some of the encounters later, and I, Dale and I, uh, and Jeff and I had talked about the NPC Freddy. Yes. Who, who's probably one of the top three all time for me that I've ever, I've ever spun up. And how, you know, as we're getting to the end of the campaign, and the last section is to get the people who are not your allies to come a lie with you and and go and, and take on the big bad guy at the end. You know, Freddie had wormed his way into the to, to, to take over the role of Lord Chamberlain, one of these guys, but he was disguised as the Lord Chamberlain. So while he's there by himself, surrounded by his, you know, people who are adversaries at this point that he's trying to diplomatically flip the other way, with one session to go after this, 
Tom, for all of his frustrations with Freddy, basically just nukes him. Yes. Tries, with, I... with the assumption that it was going to be akin to, you know, the, a movie that came out much later, um, Thor Ragnarok, where, he, where Loki's pretending to be Odin, and Thor outs him by throwing the hammers like it's going to come right back and hit you to kind of force him to, to, to reveal himself. And Tom had the same idea. I'm going to do this. Freddy's going to do his thing, and they're going to realize he's not the Chamberlain. But Freddy had a plan B and just took it full frontal in the face. So everybody's perspective is Tom, the cleric, just nuked the advisor to the king. Yes, in the hostile kingdom surrounded by the king's guards. Correct. So what I like the perspective of, of him starting as a moral compass and believing him to be the moral compass, I... I could say I know the exact point when it, he like my view of him as a moral compass just went away and was not coming back. Um, well, maybe I, I would say my impression of Tom was less the moral compass of the party and more the De Niro character in Heat it, from the movie Heat, where he has his rules, he has his plan, he he knows that the right thing to do is to accomplish the greater good in the movie Heat, being getting away. In this, this, in this being unifying the uh, unifying the clans to take on the big bad, but in this case, as in Robert De Niro's case, yes. he cannot resist finishing his final vendetta against this uh, jerk he perceives to have wronged him. Yep. Instead of Freddy, it was Wayne Grow in the movie, where yes. he goes to the, the hotel and, and see him. Uh, so, all right, then. It's clear, like I said, he'd started out as a moral compass and it's kind of gone away. But you, you viewed him almost as a, a de facto leader, right? Whether or not he he wanted the role as the cleric and the charisma diplomancer, he, he took on that role um, to a point because you had... Absolutely. And, it, and it's hard. It's not necessarily a straight comparison, but he definitely, as the cleric, as someone who had... Uh, some amount of veneration for both his abilities and the the cleric role in society. He he seemed to to be carrying on the secretary of state type role quite well. So of course you would send the the cleric to uh, parlay with the the kingdom and <laughs> the royal advisors. Because who who how many times would you expect? Uh... John Kerry, uh, I was I was thinking of before. I have no idea who our current Secretary of State is, but you wouldn't expect them to, to walk off the plane in London like arms out to Boris Johnson, kick him in the nuts. Just uh, wouldn't would not expect that to happen, no matter who is president, who their Secretary of State is. But he like that that leadership role. I it, think it's it was, the trap that Kissinger would not have fall, fallen into. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> exactly. So if you if you consider those archetypes were. Tom was a little bit of the, uh, almost the the player director to make sure that the, for the most part that the the, the the plot train kept running, right. When whenever there was a big argument between him and Drew, then Jeff would show up to do something extreme to make sure that train didn't stop. Uh, Drew was the. He was the Curtis a- LeMay of the uh, of the party. If Thomas is Secretary of State, uh, Drew is bombs away LeMay, who uh, who <laughs> is prepared to solve the problem reliably by napalming it flat. And there were times I, I think he also filled the role of devil's advocate in the yeah we're talking about doing it like this. I'm just going to do it like this and force everybody to catch up, and we'll see what happens. 
to, to kind of keep everything from getting in what he viewed as a rut. Based on based on these kind of archetypes, like the leader, the monkey wrench, uh, and the guy who can't stay still, where do you think you fit into that uh, geography? Right? I guess the player geography landscape. Absolutely. So much closer to the monkey who can't stay still, but uh, less less intervening in some respects, not necessarily in a bad way. The new character is kind of swept up in the momentum of of the party. Um, any any good group, just like any good story, uh, the story we hope to have a momentum and a direction. And in some ways, as a new as a new character joining in, you are swept up in that momentum as you should be, um, and kind of carrying through the uh, the story. In perhaps because. I also played a, a Hobbit, but very much, very much in the in the Hobbit respect, where there may be great uh, clashes afoot, and you kind of get drawn in as a spectator and hope to play your, your part as as you become able to, given your understanding of the world, the story, the rule set. All right, so we we got through, we we got to the end of that campaign with a few some memorable moments and a few speed bumps. From, from there on to the end. And then there was a bit of a break, and then we started a new campaign that Tom was running, where uh, we had three out of the four existing, uh, or we'll count the DM, four out of five existing players uh, had moved on to this campaign. For some crazy reason, I can't remember, Drew wasn't invited. Uh, and then we had uh, Mr. Pond show up, and he got to be that uh, a new player where, where he had... I would say his knowledge base of the game was very comparable to Drew's. Absolutely. But he went about it in a different way. And so now we we have a game where Tom is running the game. And he, I, I, like, I still think back to his preparation was unbelievable. Like I'm very good at pivoting and dealing with what, what gets thrown in my face. His level of preparation is goes beyond what I think George R.R. R. Martin could do like it was the, the the props he would bring and the the story and the whys he would build out uh, really impressive and then we we started a new campaign and what was the perspective um, coming in fresh to something like this comparably from understanding the system um, you're probably still on the bottom of the totem pole absolutely you do much much more experienced players uh, but you are not the proverbial last player at the table and you've, uh, with the exception, I don't know how well you knew Pond. I knew he was magic sometimes. I don't know if you guys overlapped. Uh, but what was it like at that point where you're in an existing structure and now a new player uh, comes in to join the group? Was How did that feel different versus joining the other group? So I think the difference of Pond being a new player to the group versus the difference of Pond being... Uh, a, a different weight to the the goals of the party and the and the direction that the game was taking, um, which was which was wonderful. It was a, it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic, different kind of counterbalance. Really made for some interesting stories that the previous party as assembled couldn't have encountered, and of course some some stories or directions the previous party 
could have done that we would not necessarily have encountered in that new formulation. But in any case, uh, that was that was interesting. The other the other part that I think was meaningful was being at the foundation of the story. I felt like there was a lot more latitude for characters as they're written to figure out how they interact with each other and taking uh, taking on a, a different class. So at that time I played a sorcerer, which um, being high in the uh, charisma stat to drive the sorcerer's abilities, I also felt the need to roleplay that as someone who was naturally uh, admired and followed in their in their lifetime and that was very interesting because trying to trying to assert a natural leadership in the group well that didn't necessarily stick <laughs> and as it probably shouldn't I might add given my character's actual abilities and and knowledge but that that character development made for I think a very uh, enjoyable arc in the story where this uh, confident kind of braggart of a character s- goes from assuming he knows what's what's going on and that people will follow to by the end he was a little bit of a nervous wreck <laughs> <laughs> he went from thinking he could handle anything that life threw at him to adventure 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 and now being twitchy paranoid that life <laughs> what is life gonna sack him with this time I think there was a, sp- a split reasoning because as as a player character, I know my my first character Victor was not easy to get along with for the group, as as many of the the stories would show. And then uh, the nice thing on that campaign is I know Jeff got to do it and I got to do it. We got to rotate characters in and out where we. we we had characters that when we're out adventuring, I got to play Victor for the first chunk, and then when we're based in the city. I got to play Cooper for a while, where he was the very no nonsense. I'm like I'm running the soup kitchen. I'm going to help the people. If you don't like it, I'm right here. Do something about it, All right? And then you get to you know you have a bunch more people in between, and then you get to Kavik at the end is the the pious uh, guy who's, who's serving a higher power and he's very courteous and friendly and helpful, whatnot to everybody. And then Victor back in at the end, and with Jeff, I know Jeff went with characters that that was different archetypes once once he saw that i could you know have people step away and come back and, and it gave him latitude to play a bunch of different character types throughout and some of his got to come back some didn't what was it like in a in a group like that because i'd never been in a game where you know the character left they're not dead like they're still still out there they may cause problems victor was notorious for causing problems that's why he's probably one of my all-time favorites um, but with the shifting dynamics within the group like that, where, all right, you know, we're we're going to be on, you know, we're going to be on a really good stretch for six months, and then oh look, the assholes rotating back in, you know, what was it like with the shifting dynamics in that group? I think the shifting dynamics, as you call them, they just expanded the story that we were telling. I think I think it was almost uniformly uniformly good, and I think it was a great exploration of how the same player um, was happy to play different characters and progress the uh, 
um, the story in different ways with very different motivations, sometimes very different allegiances. As we enter into a, a place where there are various factions that we might very well choose to align with, which character was in um, for the same player might very well influence the way that the that that plays out. And overall, I think it was good fun. I think it was it just made more story to tell. Now, the one thing I heard, once again, my job requires me to be very negative. It's just almost universally worked. So, where did what what pitfalls did we hit? Because we, I know at at the table. I get to be very strong-willed, right? I am, I, like, I'm, I'm full-on ram's horn, head down, ready to charge sometimes, especially when I was playing Victor. So where did this, like, the swapping in and out of these characters or, or changing that dynamic, uh, where did you see friction show up for that? Where did that start to cause issues, either amongst the story or amongst the dynamic of the players at the table? Sure. To tell a cohesive story, I think every player in some respects will need to subvert some of their highest desires in order to keep the party together. Um, the most disruptive elements were when, again, one of your favorite characters, VJG, decided to go full Boromir and uh, try to take the, direct, the whole direction of the plot different to uh, solo one of the one of the great adversaries and potentially derail the plot. So that was one, a heroic attempt. I can certainly see that. And had it worked, it would have been something to really celebrate. Uh, however, that was a fairly inopportune time to, to lose one of the power characters in the plot in a manner that was probably preventable. God bless time loops. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, just, I just remember like, oh, he died, and there was like, no, we had this time to get it rewind. Wait, he's not really dead because it went back before the before he tried to solo the dragon very stupidly on the dragon's cold mountain. Uh, but he, in the end, I'm I'm happy because in, in the very last fight with the final boss, he got there. We, you know, we're there at five o'clock, and you know, five o five, the campaign's over because I had that I got that beautiful turn one miracle. Uh, I, I always think about that because I was talking to. Uh, to Jeff about that when we're telling some war stories because we get to the end of that five o'clock like Tom's wife knows we're going to be there late five minutes and it's done right and as compared to uh, when we we reached the end of my campaign where we started at noon for just the last battle and we left at midnight a little bit after midnight oh wow because there was you know, they, like there was so many pieces in play, and people were thinking about strategy, and there was the Drew factor in one moment. So it, well, and rightly so, that campaign that you were wrapping up from years of effort, you constructed the final confrontation to bring all of the, uh, all or many of the factions back. This was a, this was a chance to to bring all the characters into play that had been important throughout the years. This was, this was marching on the Black Gate uh, with the advantage of, you know, a, a much stronger team going in against a defeatable adversary. And, and Freddy, Freddy helped a lot in that one as much as everybody, uh, well, specifically Drew despised Freddy, which uh, honest and truly, I think Drew only ever despised Freddy because 
Freddie was a more successful dick than Drew was. Yes, I could see that. Uh, you were also careful to uh, careful to point out that Freddie was an adversary, not a villain. Yes, there's a distinction. Uh, antagonist. Them. Yes, he was oh, definitely sorry. An, <laughs> antagonist. And he was an adversary too. Sometimes, but definitely, he was not always working in the best interest of the party. Yeah. So, looking at the nature of, of of those groups, when when you think about players in new groups and, and players coming together in, in a new new group, do you think there's a I guess a comparable difference because one Christmas I held the the one off. I think you were there for that. Yes. Where I just I brought everybody in and it was a, just a, here's a little one shot. We're doing a a forty seven Ronish final battle um, encounter. So there's not a lot of backstory meant. It was very very tactical and you know there was limited like nobody had a character that used magic. So it's like you're you're limited on on this. Um, and, and just and that had like nine, ten players at the table, right? Because it was a nice little Christmas one-off. What do you see as different from, you know, dealing with with new players or players you haven't played with or haven't played with in a long time, for like a one-shot, an encounter, a module, or what have you, versus uh, like starting out on a campaign or or joining a campaign. So for a one-shot module, I think that by its nature. It should be a more linear story, as it was. One of the amazing advantages of a role-playing game and D&D over other game systems is the, the world exploration and the, and the DM changing the world for the players as they make select selections within the world. And so, for an example, the kind of thing where Kubrick, the other character you brought up, decided to break in the prison to bring uh, hope and healing to the prisoners in a way that wasn't necessarily aligned with any of the plots, but was the right thing to do. And giving the characters the latitude to try to change the change the fate of the city they're in, change that, is something that the DM may not have predicted, but but is a hugely valuable thing. Now, in comparison to a one-shot, you just don't have as much space for that latitude. You're you're there to tell one clever story, you know, one Twilight Zone episode and let the players enjoy their way through it, figure out the puzzle and get the uh, the fight at the end. In terms of what attaching to what you said earlier, one of the things that seems apparent to me when bringing new players in is to be very upfront with with them about what the current party composition, what their motivations are, and I, I think I'm very thankful you did that. But that helps uh, somewhat prepare and allow the player to construct a character that will somehow uh, fit into that uh, milieu a little better than if they always rolled uh, an axe wielding barbarian who answers every problem with chopping and realize they got themselves into a more diplomatic or or a different kind of campaign i think that that's a big part starting a new campaign bringing somebody in just to help them understand uh, what you know the nature of what the party's trying to do and make sure skill sets are complementary uh, as an example 
I have a campaign I'm running for some relatively new players, a couple experienced players who are good at maintaining the balance with the new players and not trying to like show them up, which I, I think that it, the experience levels can get a little daunting for brand new players when they see uh, these people can do all this stuff. Uh, how do I shoot my bow? Right, uh, like Things like this. Uh, but having that discussion, because as I, I mentioned, I have five players at the table. None of them cast spells. Oh. I have no arcane. I have no healer. And we had just come off a session where they're going after uh, the first big adversary NPC. And do they want to capture her? Do they want to interrogate her? Are they just going to try to whack her? How are they going to do this? Small confined area, they outnumber the adversaries, the difference being they're all second level, she's fourth level, and then you have her mooks underneath. And ultimately, it it got so silly, nobody had any, any spells. More importantly, as we found over time, nobody had any healing, which would become relevant. The end of the encounter, all the bad guys are ultimately dead. Four out of the five player characters are stabilized in the negatives, and the fifth one is at zero. Wow. And ultimately, the in, well, they, I was not rolling crits or anything. I was just watching one, 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 one. Like, there's, as a DM, there's only so much you can do about players rolling ones. Uh, that ultimately, it was the ranger who was a halfling, uh, sent her riding dog in, who got the, the crit on the bite to take down the boss. Like, just enough where the dog saved the day. And, uh, you know, it's one of those looking back, okay, what can we do about healing now? And the, the first session we had, the party nearly got wiped because they had no spellcasters. Because the enemy had one spellcaster, and he can attack from range. And if you're not, like, if you're trying to shoot back with the bows and you're not you're not rolling well, then he's, he's ultimately, until he runs out of gas, in a, a tactical position. And I had to have a... Deus Ex Healer show up to to not just wipe the party at the beginning. So I, I view that the nature of the, the complementary skill sets is very important. Uh, but making sure you have players who are willing to play those complementary skill sets. Absolutely. But also I think it's a matter of not knowing the how deep the complementary skill sets go. Uh, I could very well have named my all of my characters Dunning-Kruger <laughs> because I couldn't know that, in fact, architecture engineering was important or becoming a legendary admiral would convey some unexpected advantage. In, in, in fairness, this is, all, this is all true, but I, I also give credit to Tom in, in taking advantage of our, our doing that. Right? Like there's uh, well, one of the rules that gets discussed, and it's, it's easier to apply in established groups than it is new groups because it, it's in an established group. It's like, all right, these things should happen. People aren't going to get fussy about it. But in, in new groups or groups where the players haven't played together that long, it's like, all right, he got his turn to do something amazing. And I want my turn to do something amazing. It's, it's what um, actually the, the ranger whose dog saved the day uh, this past weekend referred to as the rule of cool. Ah. Right, if the player just somehow successfully does something so nuts, so bonkers, impressive, you just roll like a good deal will roll with it. Find a way to, to deal with that, uh, because once again, it's it's the purpose of, of the game, and and the rule of cool 
feels a lot easier to do with an established group, or at least a, a mostly established group, because then even if a member of the team pulls off the I can't believe I just one-shotted the boss at the very end, you know, the team was involved to get to that point, right? It was not a one-player affair, where I think the flexibility of DMs gets a, a lot more rigid when you have multiple people playing for the first time, whether it's a, a one-off or if you're playing you know, like the, the Saturday D&D at the, the game store with the, the Wizards Leagues or whatnot, where now you, you have to balance uh, potential resentment about, you know, why did that person that I've never met get to do something bonkers, but my crazy bonkers thing didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just like a table of new poker players... Uh, what you want to avoid is a scenario where someone feels like the best thing they can do is go all in on a pocket pair of sevens to intimidate everyone else out, try to, in, in D&D parlance, do their cool thing, and then they lose, and then they're out of chips. So you don't want to create an environment where the, the characters feel that there are no consequences to their taking a big risk for a big payoff. It wants to feel like the... The trade-offs are real. The risks are real. That's definitely the case because the like with some of these new players um, in new groups, you you run into the the other direction where if you have one person and they don't their skill sets aren't complementary, but their skill sets are are a next level above everybody else. You run into the the scenario where they're doing all this crazy stuff, and then the rest of the players ultimately ask, "Why am I here?" Right? Because it, I'm not, I'm not involved in the plot. I'm not advancing the story. I'm all I am is a cheerleader for this person. And when I see players do that, and there's a, a very specific type of player, and I think when you see that, a lot of that is what they're bringing to the table from from their life, uh, where it's it is, in, in fairness, a giant, like a, a look-at-me player where it's consistently look-at-me, and I can do crazy stuff. I've, I've run games with, with players like this. There, I even acknowledge there are times when Victor has been this character, though I'd like to think not consistently. Uh, like, how, how would you play around that? Like, if you were dealing with that in a group, I mean, they, they, yeah, choice A is find a new group. But choice B, how would you deal with that at the table? And generally speaking, when this is happening, if it's whether it's a new player who's coming like this or players coming to a table where somebody's like this, odds are you're, you're not going to be the only player taking issue with this at the table. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where uh, DMs that are better than me will provide a better answer, I'm sure. But my my impulse is to say that the the dm has to in some ways direct the story to encourage players not to do that to show them that when they're doing um kind of pro party cool things and letting and letting the party accomplish its goals and support each other then that's great when they try to not do that um to if do two things one if it's a real risk, sometimes you let the player, sometimes you let the player die, and that's regrettable. That's that's not the most ideal way to solve it. The other way that seems helpful is to give them 
uh, an inglorious finish to what to them trying to steal all of the glory themselves. So, for example, in the in a previous campaign, one character wanted to sneak off to accomplish something, and the DM let them just get lost in the sewers. Not not an interesting loss, the kind of loss where the player just kind of wandered around and eventually found their way back slightly smellier and more irate than when they left. <laughs> um, this kind of this kind of interaction where maybe the character just gets themselves lost, maybe they run into a band of lower level characters that that really don't bring any glory to overcome, but who happen to all grapple them at the same time to subdue them. These kind of things push the player in the right direction without net, in a way that still fits with the story, um, but without removing their ability to play at all. Now, last question. Thinking about the ideal group to bring to a table. Like, if you were going to sit and play in a game, what what are the attributes you'd, ex- you'd really like to see amongst the other players, knowing that there's there should be, like, some variety. Like, you don't want, um, like, four Vin Diesels at the table. Though I'd, I'd love to game with him for one session. Um, or an Elijah Wood, who's also a big gamer. Um, what, like, what... What do you think need to be some of the unifying factors? And I, I get the feeling some of this will be boilerplate. Um, but what what do you think people coming to a table? I guess when they're when they're the outside person, or if they're they're starting with a brand new group who's starting fresh, what should they be bringing to the table as a player beyond like player knowledge and this is my character? What matters to make a great play experience is that the characters find some common reason for endeavor, something that ties them together to the, great, to the greater goal or progressing the story. And second of all, that the characters have, the, the players truly differentiate their characters. They give them reasons to do things and reasons to react to things. What makes the most enjoyable experience is when players are basically pro-social, willing to back the party up, but also have their own takes and their own motivations so that the story doesn't progress in a straightforward, linear fashion. Everyone gets to be a little bit surprised. Everyone gets to be a little bit off balance. And that's what creates the most overall enjoyable uh, story. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Caleb, thank you very much. Appreciate you doing this. Appreciate us uh, having some some talk about some of these games. We haven't had a chance to really sit down and do this in a while. Uh, thank you for being part of, of uh, episode five of the podcast. And that's just uh, gamers new to the game, new to the group, uh, joining a group where, where things are already established. Uh, once again, this is Dungeon Master Eddie with session five. Uh, next session, session six, episode six. I will be sitting down with a young man named Dragon, whose father was Drew. And we are going to have a session where we talk uh, about the Drew factor in a lot of things. Lots of war stories. Uh, Some good, some bad, but uh, it should be both enlightening and entertaining. So once again, this is Dungeon Master Eddie. Thank you.